Good morning again to you. My wife and I, one of our, we were singing this song and it reminded me of one of our favorite books that I think my wife probably reads more than I do to, my, to our kids. And really the only one left that we read this book to is Susanna. She's our three and a half year old. And it's a book about a rabbit, a mother rabbit and her son. And I can't remember the name of it, but it's, it's the, the text and the pictures are done by the same two people that do the, uh, the mouse book, the Goodnight Moon. You know, you always, the kid always finds the mouse. It's a famous, so, but it's a mom and the story is just that she's, no matter, the bunny's like, I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to leave home and just go do my thing. And every place that he says he's going to go, she's like, I'm just going to go get you. And so there's one of them where she goes, he goes up to a mountain. She's like, I'm just going to be a mountain climber. I'm going to come get you anyway. So, and then at the end, he's like, I might as well just stay here. And she's like, have a carrot. You know, (laughs) you're not, you're not going to get away from my love. I, uh, when I think about the love of a mother, I think about that book. Um, when I think about the love of God, I think about the love of a mother. Um, I think about the time that Suzanne almost drowned in our pool. Some of you know that, some of you don't, but it happens in a split second, you know, and we looked at her and her head was, we could barely see it. And she was just on the second step and it was silent as death. I mean, there was no cry. It was just, she had taken a step down and who knows how long she'd been there. And I mean, within, I was cleaning the pool and I was pretty much just as close, but within, I I couldn't even blink and Robin was already there, grabbed her out. And uh, that's, that's the love of a mother. But where does that love come from? comes from God. That's God. Our God goes after the one. The love of a mother, the love of a father, uh, it comes from God, who is the father. So I want to say happy Mother's Day to, to mothers. We, I, I don't have any words. How, how could we possibly thank you enough? Um, to those of you who want to be mothers and aren't yet, to those of you who maybe have lost your mom, I just want to remind you that you have a father who will never let you go. Um, So mothers, we love you. We're thankful for you. We don't have roses to hand you, but (laughs) here's the proverbial rose. Thank you for doing what you do. You love love us well. Um, So Winston Churchill once described a political opponent as a modest little man who has a good deal to be modest about. Let that sink in. He was so witty. Uh, and Paul basically, he's kind, in a more kind way, showing the Corinthian church this morning that's a proud, by and large, a proud church and a heavily resourced church. That as we said weeks ago when we started the series, they, in a lot of ways, the, the Corinth, which was on the, the, the connection between mainland Greece and the, and the Peloponnesus, that other bit at the south, in, jutting into the Mediterranean Sea, um, they were a wealthy church, they were a trade route, they were super multi-ethnic and also extremely uh, sexual and other, other ways uh, just sinful. And so Paul writes to this church in the midst of this uh, environment and the church has become a lot like the world and they're proud and, they, they, and they're sinful and they're proud about their sin and we're gonna see more of that next week. But he gently reminds them of at least three ways in which, um, three ways that they are three things that they have to be modest about in Christ. And so we're just gonna look at those three things this morning. The first one is that um, Paul, and it's really about who he is and who the apostles are, but I wanna apply it to us because it applies to us as well. None of us are apostles, okay? But Paul, the first point is just that Paul is a steward. He reminds the church of that. And, and, and the, the injunction to us is to be stewards because we all are stewards. And that's not, I put verses one through five up there, but it's really verses one through, through seven, where he talks about the fact that we are not owners, 
We think of ourselves as owners of what we have. But everything that we have, we don't have. It's on loan. Paul reminds us that he is a steward and that we are all stewards, that all we have is God's and that we will be called to account one day for how we spent what is his. Um, So Paul first applies this to himself, like I said. He says that we, I and the apostles, we're the stewards of the mysteries of God. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. And there's so much packed into there. Uh, Some of that is, and a large part of that is, the gospel itself. The fact that there's so much mystery to the gospel, not least of which how is God gonna call not just a particular people to himself, but make a people for himself out of any nation on the planet through one way, his son that he sent to make us sons and daughters by faith. But also just the idea that like we have a huge sin problem. God is holy, he will never compromise his holiness. And yet he loves us, but he can't look on sin. But he has to punish sin. And sin is not only something we do, it's who we are. We are sinners born into sin, and it, and it is the fabric, the warp and woof of our being, and it's the power that takes us over until it's cut out. But if it is cut out, if it's destroyed, then because it's part of who we are, we're destroyed. So how can God love us and justly punish sin? How can he be just, as Paul says, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ? Well, that's it. Christ came and became our sin for us on the cross. And he paid that punishment and represented all who would look to him. And so he was destroyed, as it were. But, but the, the, the source of life itself can't be killed for long. And so he rose from the dead, having made that payment, and we are now accepted in him. And so Paul is a steward of this mystery. And so um, in the same way, I think sort of to take it one notch down from that, and we'll keep going, teachers, all teachers, I, a preacher, a teacher, one who's called to, in particular to teach the church, I'm a steward of, of these mysteries as well, and I'm a steward of your souls. Um, I've always said that I would never want to be an engineer. As I drive across a bridge or I look at a, a huge uh, tower, man, I think that I would not want to be responsible for all those people. We see towers fall. We see bridges start to undulate in these horrible videos, and, then, and I know something like that happened in Florida recently where a bridge gave way and somebody had pointed out the crack earlier. And I just think that sends, sends a shiver down my spine. First of all, you mourn, but secondly, you go, man, I, I would not want to be responsible for all those people. But, but the fact is that there's a sense in which teachers are responsible for more. We're responsible for the eternal souls of people to teach the full counsel of God, not just our, our hobby horse and not to teach it falsely, but to teach it as God delivers it to us in his word by the power of his spirit, which is one of the reasons James, toward the end of the Bible, the half-brother of Jesus, he says, not many of you should become teachers in chapter three, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with what? Greater strictness. And Paul mentions that judgment here. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm not, I'm gonna be judged by God himself. So your judgment doesn't really matter. We'll get to that in a second. Um, the Bible strongly implies that if I don't teach the full countenance of God to you, I will be accountable. If there's something you don't hear and don't respond to because of that, I will be accountable in part for the blood it says that it's on your head. It will be on my head. So that is, that is a fierce truth. And Paul owns it and I own it. Um, and it's sobering. So you're not my judge, God is. And I will answer to him. And this applies to every Christian. We hold these truths, the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hold these in and we ought to be spreading that seed liberally, 
liberally. We're not to be carefully planting one seed at a time. That's not the image that's given, but to be spreading the seed of the gospel in our relationships with our words in the way that we lay our lives down for people, right? Telling them about the miracle of Jesus Christ and how he's the only way to the Father. There's this huge problem in Jesus' assault that come. It's the only good news there is. If, there's, if that's not good news, nothing else is. So we, in the same way, we're stewards of this mystery. But it applies to every person too, not just to every Christian. Everything, like I said five minutes ago, everything that anyone has has been lent to him by God. All your knowledge, all your connections, all your stuff, all your time, your breath, the blood in your veins, everything. We think of it as ours, but Paul, I mean, it reminds us in verse seven that everything we have has been given to us by God. We're just stewards. But we live like it's ours, and so that's what puffs us up and makes us proud like the Corinthians. It's like, it's Cecilia's bragging about what hospital you were born in or what color hair you have, if your hair is not the natural color that it is. You, ha- you had nothing to do with that. And that's the same with what we've been given. God gives us things according to his wisdom and expects us to steward those things wisely and humbly. But our sin makes us constantly go back to, I'm an owner. It's like every morning I forget that and have to remind myself through his word, the mirror of his word and community and his Holy Spirit that, that no, that's not, that's not the case. Um, but you might respond, yeah, but I've worked hard to get what I have and I've, wor- I've worked hard to get to the top. Yes, that's true, but who gave you the breath and the health and the abilities and set you up in every possible way? Who created you? Who gave you all of that so that you could reach that place? God did and God can take it and he could take you now, and that's where we're gonna go as well. So that helps us just, again, remember, Paul is humbling gently. He's reminding them that they have a lot to be modest about. He's gently reminding them to be humble, to live in holy fear of the fact that we are stewards. Um, And so in IDU, wanna pass that on, and to myself. Howard E. Butt, um, what an unfortunate last name, but there it is, and he built this great empire, didn't he? We're we're sitting in the middle of it right now, the the HEB. He was the original founder and CEO and he wrote an article, a little, little, little essay called The Art of Being a Big Shot. And this is some of it. He said, it's my pride that makes me independent of God. It's appealing to me to feel that I'm a master of my fate, that I run my own life, call my own shots, go it alone. But that feeling is my basic dishonesty. I can't go it alone. I have to have help from other people and I can't ultimately rely on myself. I'm dependent on God for my next breath. It's dishonest of me to pretend that I'm anything but a man, small, weak, and limited. So living independent of God is self-delusion. It's not a matter just of pride being an unfortunate little trait and humility being an attractive little virtue. It's my inner psychological integrity that's at stake. When I'm conceited, I'm lying to myself about what I am. When I'm pretending to be God and not man, my pride is the idolatrous worship of myself, and that is the national religion of hell. Um, So again, what does this all mean? It means that we are stewards and will be judged as such. How do we steward what God gave to us for a time to invest? Um, God alone is my judge, as Paul says here in verse three. Um, Let me make sure that it's verse three. Yep, Uh, God alone is my judge. So this is both good and bad news. Let me start with the good news. Good news first. Um, Others are not your judge. I live so much of my life, confession time, as if y'all and others that I encounter we're my judges. And that's, Paul just blows that up. He's like, that's, it doesn't matter if any human court or you judge me because you're not my judge. So that's good in a sense. That frees us up not to live concerned about the opinion of man, doesn't it? Um, I'm often so shackled by that, but unnecessarily. 
This truth just breaks those shackles up. Um, another bit of good news is that you don't ha- you're not others' judge. So you don't have to judge others. That's what gossip is. It's us judging other people, making ourselves feel better than um, putting ourselves over them and making ourselves feel good in the process. Um, we don't have to judge others. Even if they're worthy of judgment, God is the judge. He'll take care of that. Miroslav Volf uh, taught at Yale for a while, born in Croatia. He wrote a famous book called Exclusion and Embrace, and he suffered, and he, those he knew in his family and friends, he suffered, um, as so many in the Balkans did, um, in, in some egregiously horrible ways that most of us can't imagine but hear about. Um, and he, his basic thesis in that book is that the only thing that will keep folks that have been massively sinned against truly, truly done injustice to. Because justice matters, right? Eh, don't worry about it. That's not, that's not the right course. He says, you can't say that if you've been massively sinned against. The only thing that will keep you from taking matters into your own hands and, and taking vengeance into your own hands is believing in a God of justice and a God of vengeance. Justice is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Um, and so God is judge, and we can, guess what? We can just leave it to him. And most of us aren't sinned against like that. We're sinned against in small ways, but to acknowledge we were sinned against and then to also say, yes, but we sinned against you, God, and you've given us grace, but Lord, I give that to you, and I'm gonna pray for my enemies. I'm gonna pray for them. So it keeps us, that's good news too. Um, the bad news is that you are not your own judge. Uh, initial bad news. So verses three to four, Paul's like, I, you know, my conscience is clear. I'm not aware of anything that I've done or haven't done, but that actually doesn't matter either because God is my judge and only what he thinks is truth and matters. And he has the power to judge and he will judge. That's where we're headed. He will judge. C.S. Lewis, I've read it before. Oh, sorry, before I get there, in verse five, Paul says this. He says, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So the fact is, God, he's going to, he knows our insides and he's going to judge all that. There's a time in which all the hidden things, everything that hasn't been disclosed will be disclosed and brought to light. All the dark things that have been hidden will be brought to light. Um, Lewis, at the end of his excellent essay, Dogma in the Universe, I've read it before, he says, don't let us deceive ourselves no possible complexity which we can give to our picture of the universe can hide us from God. There's no cops, no forest, no jungle thick enough to provide cover. We read in Revelation of him that sat on the throne from whose face heaven and earth fled away. It may happen to any of us at any moment in the twinkling of an eye, in a time too small to be measured at any place, all that seems to divide us from God can flee away, vanish, leaving us naked before him like the first man like the only man, as if nothing but he and I ever existed. So nothing can hide us from the God with whom we have to do. Least of all, a disbelief in God. That doesn't mean that God, if you don't believe that God exists, that doesn't mean, or that God is just just or a judge, it doesn't mean that he's not those things and that he doesn't exist, not at all. It doesn't affect him at all, but it will affect you. This should make us live differently with our hearts exposed to the living God who is the judge, but who is a merciful and gracious judge who has made a way in Christ. And I'll get to more of that. So disbelief in God, kind of like I just touched on, is no excuse. It's like a kid. Remember when you were a kid and you hid under the sheets because you thought there was a ghost or some sort of thief in your room or whatever you were afraid of and you thought, this sheet's gonna protect me? As long as I don't pop my head out, I'm good. Like, that's silliness. That's not, if there was actually a real danger there, that's not gonna protect you at all. 
That's what disbelieving in God and God is just, that's how effective it is if he truly does exist. Bertrand Russell, famous atheist, 20th century British philosopher, uh, he said, he was asked, what if you pass, you die, and you find out that you were wrong, and there is a God, and you face him? And, he, and he's, they, they say, what will you say? And he just said, I'll say to God, insufficient evidence. But Paul actually, in Romans 1, says something different in another letter that he writes to the church in Rome, not in Corinth, just to the left of Corinth. He says that we are without excuse because God has given plenty of evidence, both inside in our conscience and outside in his creation, that he is that he exists and that he has certain attributes of power and justice. And so, um, and, and for we who have heard the gospel of Christ articulated over and over and over again, we, will, we are especially without excuse. But Paul goes on to say the reason that we make up these sort of excuses because we wanna do, we wanna live the way we wanna live and we push the truth down in our unrighteousness. We suffocate it, we push it under the water and want it to drown. Um, so disbelief in God is no excuse. Misbelief in God is no excuse. Hey, I thought God was different. But actually, um, Jesus tells this parable of the three stewards. It's an incredibly hopeful but also terrifying parable of, of three stewards that a king gives a bunch of stuff to. Again, they're stewards, they're not owners, just like us. It's a picture of us. We, everything we have is the king's. He's gonna return and call us to account. How'd you invest my stuff? And the two of them do well and invest it well and know that he's a good king and know that he's gonna come back and ask how you invested my stuff. So he gives them more responsibility and praises them. But the last one, he misunderstands the master and he says, he, he buries what the master gives him and doesn't do anything with it. He doesn't use his talent. He doesn't use what he's been given. And instead of the master coming back and he says, so the master comes back and he calls the guy to account and he, and he says, I thought you were a hard master, angry, not merciful at all, not just. That's not at all how, all how God is, but rather than saying, okay, you thought wrongly of me, it's all right. He says, well, you will be judged based on what you thought of me. And he gets the harshest treatment of all. It affects not just that point in his life, but the rest of his eternity. So misunderstanding God is no excuse either. Um, so just a reminder before we move on to point two that Paul is scum, and that's the word he uses. Um, just reminding ourselves that we are stewards, not owners. Just a simple point that Paul starts off with. And we will be called to account for how we invested. What is God's? It's not ours. So let's stop living like owners, but live like stewards. So second point is just Paul is scum. Be scum. That's the injunction. Paul is scum. Be scum. He calls himself scum in verse 13. But verses 8 through 13, this middle section, he basically says, like, look, you Corinthians, you're, you have everything and we have nothing. Okay, so I'll get into that in a second. What's Paul doing? But first, I just want to stop with a true story about a guy named Thomas Wheeler, who was the CEO at one point of Massachusetts Mutual Life Insurance Company. And he and his wife were on a road trip and they were uh, on an interstate highway and low on gas. So he pulls over and he starts to, f actually, I think that the gas, it was a, it's an older story. And so the gas station attendant came over full service and started, there aren't too many full services left, you know. And he started filling their tank up and he stretched his legs as you're wont to do on a, on a road trip and kind of did some circles around the, um, the gas station, and he gets back in the car a few minutes later, and the guy's finishing up, and he and his wife, the gas station, and, and Thomas Wheeler's wife are, are speaking, and they've been talking, and they're really rather engaged in conversation, and then as they get in the car and the doors close, he says, well, so great to talk to you. Take care, and so they start on the highway again, and Thomas Wheeler says, what, were, uh, what was that about? That was like a really lively conversation. She goes, you know what? We actually knew each other really well in high school, it turns out. 
True story. And um, we dated seriously for a year. And the guy's like, wow. He kind of chuckles and Wheeler says, uh, isn't that funny? If, uh, I bet you're glad you married me because um, you married the, you know, if you, if you married him, you'd be the wife of a gas station attendant. But since you married me, you're the wife of a CEO. And she, and she chuckled back and said, oh, darling, um, if I'd married him, he'd be the CEO and you'd be the gas station attendant. <laughs> um, we all need put in our place like that every now and again, and I more than anyone. My wife and kids are good at, in a gracious way, bringing me back down to earth. I'm an inflated balloon. Um, but Paul is in a gentle way, I think, in this section that's colorful and somewhat confusing, reminding the Corinthians, you think because you are wealthy in the eyes of the world. And he gets on in this next section that I'll preach next week, God willing, um, to talk about even in your sin, you are arrogant. They think that because they have all the world's goods, that they are blessed of God and well. And he, on the, um, by contrast, along with the other apostles, he says, we are the scum of the earth. That's the word he uses in verse 13, the refuse of all things. We've been made a spectacle to men and to angels. We, are, we go sleepless. We are stripped naked and destitute, poor, buffeted, within and without by pains, anxieties, troubles for the church. And that's in a different, a different uh, part of a different letter. But he's, he basically says, it, it, to the outward eye, it looks like you are the blessed ones and you are the ones God is smiling on and we not. Um, but actually, I think this is the, <clears throat> the point of this section. Excuse me, he's saying in God's economy, because of the economy of the cross, where the most blessed man carried a cross for us and was rejected and persecuted and lived a poor, a poverty-stricken life. Um, He has changed things such that um, actually it's a badge of honor that we apostles are being called to this kind of life. And it's, here's the thing, it's not always, let's not be mistaken, all that glitters is not gold. That's a Tolkien line, of course. I had to bring him in. Um, All that glitters is not gold. Riches aren't necessarily a curse, but they sure can be, and they're definitely not always a sign of God's blessing. Now, they are from God's hand, and we are called to use them and to steward them, okay? But often God giving us what we want, riches often are the worst thing somebody can have because they, they make you feel self-sufficient. They make you feel, they, they, that's the tendency of having worldly wealth, and they make you feel like, indeed, you are blessed of God. But so much of Jesus' ministry was the opposite. He came for everyone, but the rich, th- a lot of times the rich thought they did not need him. And that is the blessing of being poor. The poor have an easier time seeing, I have nothing and I need you, God. Um, and so Paul is, is saying, he's flipping the tables and saying, sometimes when God gives us what we want, it's the worst possible form of judgment. Again, in Romans 1, Paul says, he gave those over to their cravings. And they ended up going far, far away. He just left them to their own devices. That is the worst thing God can do. But rather to intervene and to come and to grab you, and to keep you from going your own way, that, is, that kind of intervention is a blessing. And in Christ, God has done that. In no greater way could God have done that than to come after us in the person of his own precious son and to be crushed in our place. So it seems like the Corinthians are blessed and Paul and the other apostles cursed, but actually Paul knows that he is not tasting God's displeasure, but rather his pleasure. He is wearing the badge of Christ. He knows this because of the cross. 
He knows this because of the cross. Um, we have a, some dear friends. Um, she was in a prolonged affair and uh, was caught a number of times. Didn't voluntarily come out, was caught a number of times. And almost, they lost almost all their friends. Most of their friends were Christians. And many of their Christian friends told him, divorce her. Um, but he stayed with her. She has since repented. Their marriage is stronger than ever. They're on fire for the Lord. But what happened is that rather than being praised by his friends for staying with her and loving her through that, he was basically rejected by most. Along with her, he bore her stigma because he was one flesh and remains one flesh with her. And he bore it gladly. And it hurt but it was a badge of honor to him. He was glad to do it. And because he did, their marriage is saved. And probably, I know she's saved, but I don't know. I just, she was on the, on, the, on the brink of hell and got pulled back because the grace of Christ was manifest through her husband who bore her stigma. And friends, I don't know that I can preach the gospel any more effectively than saying, this is what Christ did for us. He bore our stigma. All of us stand guilty before a just God. And Christ came and said, I'll take, I'll take the hit. I'll take all of it. I'll drink it to the last drop. And that's what we're gonna celebrate in a second. I will drink the cup of the wrath of God for you and for you and for you. And I will bear that stigma and I'm glad to do it. It's a joy set before me. And so he endured the cross, despising the shame. And Paul is saying, this is what we get to do as Christians. We get to bear, we get to bear the cross of Christ. The thing that the world shakes its head at and thinks is such a shame. And we, the world will pay lip service to a Christ that demands nothing of it. But to a Christ, that's a figment of the world's imagination. Christ says, I came all of me for all of you. Pick up your cross and follow me. The world praises a Christ that demands nothing of it, but that Christ doesn't exist. And so just as Christ, if you are Christ, is rejected by the world, so will you be. And that, friends, is an honor. And that's what Paul's saying. Get your economy right, Corinthians. Get your economy right. Um, a proud Christian, most recently, this is a recycled phrase for a reason, most recently said by Ligon Duncan, um, the, CE, the chancellor of my old seminary, a, a proud Christian is an oxymoron for that reason. Christ gave all of himself willingly through no good of our own to rescue us and to make us beautiful. How can we be proud? Free? Yes. At peace? Yes. Joyful? Absolutely. Proud? It's an oxymoron. So let that humble us. We have a lot to be modest about. How can this, how can this um, look before we move to point three? Just a few reminders and some pointers, just practical stuff. How can, how can our lives begin to look more like this? Again, to remind ourselves that we're stewards, not owners, that we'll be called to account. To know that things often are opposite of what they seem. To actually work hard to associate with the poor and lonely, uh, 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 the poor and lowly and afflicted, as James, the half-brother of Jesus, recommends that we do. Not to treat the rich different than the poor, and actually to learn from the poor. There's no, poor, poverty is an evil, it will be eradicated one day. 
Um, but the poor are often blessed because they know they need God and they're hungry for the things of him. They tend to be more. There's less to distract and to pull them away. And so to learn from them in that sense as we learn from children in some senses. In other, children, in other ways, we don't need to learn from children. But the ways that children are good at receiving and don't think about their image, this is wonderful stuff. They're, 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 they're keen to, and quick to play and to be joyful. Um, so should we learn. And that's one of the reasons we want to be involved increasingly in partnerships, to plow into, to bless those who have less where God is working, but also to learn ourselves from those that we're serving. What a blessing. Um, understand thirdly that we're on a cosmic stage. Paul in verse nine, he says, we are a spectacle and men and angels are watching us. In Hebrews 12, the author says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race set out for us, throwing off sin that so, sin that, uh, that so and the things of the world that so easily trip us up and entangle us and looking to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. So that's the fourth thing is don't look to others. It's so easy to look to others and get our measure for how we ought to, our pace in life or what we ought to be going after or our own self-worth from others. But rather what Paul is saying is look to Christ. And that's kind of where he ends up in this last section. The world will not admire us. Paul calls himself the scum of the earth. And that word is the ring. It's sort of like the ring left around your bathtub after a kid gets in it and then gets out clean. It's just, it's literally the off scouring. And that's what we will appear as to much of the world. And that's a blessing. We get to identify with Christ, to have his stigma on us, that that might draw some to salvation. What a blessing. What a blessing. Know, fifthly, that God hates pride and he loves humility. Let that be an encouragement to be modest. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you really wanna be in a place where God opposes you? I don't. God saved me from my pride but he gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 66, two, but this is the one to whom I will look. What kind of person? He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Know this, pride, just from a practical standpoint, for you business-minded folks, and we got a lot of practical people in here, which is great. We need more of your help. <laughs> I'm not so practical. Um, pride doesn't work. Just from a workability standpoint, the wheels eventually come off of the proud vehicle. Humility does work. Let me explain. So Jim Collins, I, I've mentioned him a few times. He wrote what many see as like one of the premier business books um, in the past 15 or 20 years and from good to great. And it's based on empirical research. And he came up with the 11 companies that performed a certain way on the NASDAQ essentially. And he said, what do they have in common? And his book's about well, those things that they have in common. So it's empirical. It's not just like, I have a, big, a great business idea. Let me put it out. Let me make a thesis and try to, um, try to support it. No, it's empirically driven. Um, the first trait was no surprise that the CEOs, uh, the heads of these companies, they had a massive professional will and drive. That's no surprise. But the second trait that every single of the 11 companies had, of their CEOs rather, was a shocker. And that is um, what uh, he, he labeled the, the, those drivers, those leaders, every single one of them were what he called servant leaders, I believe. I didn't look the phrase up. They were self-effacing and modest. When Collins interviewed those who worked for the leaders, they said to a man or a woman, quote, they continually use words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understated, did not believe his or her own clippings. Humility. Serving others, making them better, not caring so much about. Humility, what does C.S. Lewis say? It's not thinking less of yourself. Be honest about the gifts God's given you. 
but thinking of yourself less. All of these CEOs were that way, just focused on making the team better, not concerned about their own reputation, right? LeBron James, man, I'll never forget. I'm not saying he's humble. He might be, okay? I'm not gonna make that case. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be if I were that talented, but I never forget watching the, most of y'all were, not most of y'all, a lot of y'all were tucking your thumb or in diapers when this happened, but um, I'm an old guy. He was playing in high school, his, a senior game, and, and uh, ESPN televised it, and um, he was, it was a high school game as a senior, and I just remember thinking, not he's amazingly talented, which he was, he was a man among boys, a man among boys, I'm running the court, but actually what I remember thinking is that was so exceptional, he made every single person on his team way better. And that's just another example of humility, you know, that he, humility makes everyone around you better. It lifts, the water that's lifting you lifts all boats. Um, so if Paul ends with this bit on discipleship, and that's where we're going to finish too, much in a much shorter point, but um, look, let someone whose life looks like the life of Christ rub off on you by following them. And he's saying to them in this last bit here, follow me. Basically, as he says elsewhere, as I follow Christ. Imitate me, dear children. What do children do? They imitate their parents. He's saying, I'm your parent, I'm your father. Be my children, imitate me. Um, to call other, to disciple other people, to ask them to follow you as you follow Christ and to follow Christ with you, that's not, that's not bonus Christianity. That's not top tier Christianity. That's the basic call of Christ. Come to me, go as I send you and make disciples of all nations. Um, so we all ought to be disciples and disciples. As I close, Paul says in the third point, he's a father and the injunction to us is to be children. So be discipled, imitate those who are imitating Christ. How can you, how can you tell a discipler? Easy. Look for his disciples following him around or her around, okay? They will be not only walking and talking somewhat like that discipler, but here's the, here's the difference. Because we, I mean, Hitler was a discipler. Big time, unfortunately. Discipled millions. Magnetic, very magnetic. People talked about almost to a man when people described his effect when he would speak as like hypnotic. Um, but here's the difference in Christian discipleship. They look, might start to look like you in some ways as you look like Christ, but more, they will look more and more. What does salt do? It doesn't make everything the same. It brings out the natural flavoring, the natural talent as it were in the food. Okay, the sprinkling of Christ will be on your disciples. They will begin to look more and more like Christ. But also, some, you, some of you will rub off on them too. So look for uh, a discipler to have disciples. Justin, I think of him. Uh, there's a lot of you in this congregation, but he's easy because he has these things that you can just tell where who his disciples are. One, this is not exhausted, but if they're carrying around moleskins, or as he says, moleskines, and taking notes constantly, that's, that's one way you can, that's a Justin disciple. Um, if they're praying a ton more and doing a lot of listening prayer, that's a Justin disciple. If they're saying things like, it's too easy, and get them, God, uh, that's a Justin disciple. And if they're being joined to way too many text chains, that is a Justin disciple as well. Um, three things I look for in a mentor has to have a mentor that I'm gonna submit my life to in a sense, submit my life to Christ, but then offer myself um, to them to be, to be shaped and molded has to love Jesus more than anything else. Number two, man of prayer. And number three, humble. Um, my grandfather wrote me a letter when I was in high school and uh, he, he said, remember the three cardinal virtues, humility, humility, 
and humility. If you see humility in a man or woman, jump on them like a ride on a Cheeto or like a, what is it, June, a, a, a duck on a June bug. Um, it is a, uh, A.W. Tozer said, humility is as rare as an albino robin. You ever seen an albino robin? Exactly. It's hard to find. But what is it? It's a trait of Christ. It's a trait of Christ. And all of these reminders are things that should make us more humble, right? We're stewards. It's an upside-down economy. Let us care the stigma of Christ. And finally, let us be not adults but children, needing our Father, receiving, not proud, looking to be discipled, looking to disciple. Um, and I want to ask you, can you say to other people, a little diagnostic question, can you call others to imitate you in good conscience? Thinking, if they imitate me, yes, I'm a sinner, I need grace, but even that, they will see, hey, they're a sinner too, and constantly be, be offering themselves to God in confession and repentance and prayer and praise. Can you say honestly to people, follow me, imitate me? And if not, there's a problem there. Repent, ask God for that change. Dive into this community and let's get there together, okay? As Paul said, I say these things not to shame you, but to admonish you as children, to encourage you in the faith. Um, and finally, Paul ends with this bruiser. It's just so wonderful. I can't, I can't skip it. Could have preached the whole sermon on this, but he says, he says to them in verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. He's planning on taking a trip to Corinth. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. You know, in the end, and in the beginning, the Christian life is a set of beliefs. It is a set of truths, doctrines, of things that are true about the way that things are and what God has done for us. But they're not just that. They're not just words. The Christian life is being taken from death in our sin, from the gaping jaws of hell heading there into life, being set down on a wide place through the work of another, and his name is Jesus Christ. And when we look to Christ and no other and believe on him, having lived the life that we should live but can't, of obedience to the Father for us, and having died the death that we deserve on the cross in our place and paid for our sin, um, we receive by faith his own spirit and he changes us as from glory to glory. And there is true, real power there. Power to recreate the worlds. And it's gonna happen and it's happening through you. And so that's what Paul leaves them with. And next week we're gonna get into sex, a guy sleeping with his mother-in-law or something and then arrogance some more. And there's carryover because it's a letter, right? We're going from one bit to the next. And so there's gonna be more on arrogance and more on all that other stuff as well, so stay tuned. Um, but just leave us with this. There's um, a good reason to call these things not three reasons not to be arrogant, but three ways. Three ways not to be arrogant because we have the power through Christ to be changed, to be moved from a life of pride to a life of humility. And that's true power because it's a character change, becoming more and more and more like Jesus to his, to his glory. Um, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for um, moms. I thank you for being our father. I thank you for all the wonderful things that we see in good mothers and in good fathers. It's from you. You are a good, good father. And you loved and love your son perfectly and have never, ever done anything but love him. But on the cross, Lord, 
you poured out your wrath on him and turned your face from him and brought us into his place and brought him into our place. And so, God, we worship you as Father, Son, and Spirit. We love you. We thank you that in Christ we have so many reasons to be modest, to be humble. We've been given so much. Help us to steward it well, um, to remember that sometimes uh, living a life of, of pain and affliction is actually your badge of honor and to associate with the poor and the, and the lowly and to, and to follow you and to follow those who are following you <clears throat> and to aspire to be as children. We bless you in Jesus' name, amen.